This is SSN. Story Studio Network. On our last episode of Sold in the Six, we talked about the importance of good estate planning. Even having proper powers of attorneys in place before you pass away so that good decisions can be made on your behalf. On the other hand, if one of your loved ones has passed away and there's a property involved, and in most cases I deal with the children of people who have died, what's next? I'm Desmond Brown, and today on Sold in the Six, we're going to go through those steps, which will make the process as smooth as possible. In the last podcast, I spoke to lawyer Gary Cass, who specializes in estate planning. Well, we have him back again this week, and we'll be talking about the actual process of getting that property, or what we call in the real estate business, the estate sale, on the market for sale. Gary, welcome back to Sold in the Six. Thank you so much, Desmond. So Gary, we spoke about this last week, but before we get into the actual selling process, Give us a quick recap on the importance of good estate planning and how it relates to setting up a smooth real estate deal. Good estate planning starts with a process of going through making decisions about who should be the executor of the estate, uh, where there's real estate involved, what should happen with that property, and when there's more than one property, what should happen with each of those properties and then setting up a plan so that the trustee can deal with them seamlessly. The trustee, by the way, is the executor. It's the same person. Okay. So when can we get this property on the market for sale? In most cases, um, a property can be put on the market anytime, but a sale cannot actually be completed till after a will has been probated. Mm-hmm. So... The problem or the challenge is um, knowing the jurisdiction where the will is going to be probated because some are much faster at returning the document than others. So as a for instance, the City of Toronto is taking between six to eight months to return a probate after the application goes in. Um, Places like Newmarket or Brampton or farther afield are much faster. Okay. Okay. So here in Toronto, it's going to take a long time. And as you mentioned, you can put the property on the market and sell it. However, we would need to have a clause in there saying that the estate has the right to extend the closing because it has not yet gone through probate, correct? That's correct. Yeah. And we do that sometimes, but In a perfect world, we'd really, really like everything to have already gone through the courts. In the perfect world, it's much better to have the court document in hand. So then you can sell with certainty of closing date and it makes it easier for everybody involved. Okay. So you are a lawyer, but you've also acted as a trustee for estates. Um, What are some of the things that you look out for as a trustee when you are putting a property on the market? Well, I think the very first thing to mention is that when a a trustee has a property in the estate, there is a very large responsibility that comes with it 
because it's the, the trustee's responsibility to look after the property and maintain it until it's mm -hmm. sold. Uh, that involves usually a number of steps, the most important of which is to make sure that the property insurance is not canceled. Uh, ah, that's a key. It's very key. So the insurance company has to be notified. They have to be told that the property is vacant. As well, they have to be told who's inspecting the property and how often it's being inspected. They need to know that it's being cared for. Oh, okay. So, and utilities like hydro, um, gas for heat, uh, you keep all of that in place until closing. Obviously. So with respect to that, the very first thing that we either do or recommend that people do, as you know, is turn off the water. Because mm -hmm. water, water damage can be significant, especially in the winter if a pipe bursts. So the very first thing is to turn off the water either in the house or have the city come turn it off at source at, at the street. Uh, uh -huh. The other utilities should be maintained uh, because the house is still going to have to be heated in the wintertime. There still have to be lights uh, and those utilities have to be paid for. So one of the things that an executor needs to know is whether or not the person who passed away has a bank account that will fund all of these payments. And because the executor does not have access to this money immediately, what has to be done is they have to make arrangements with the bank to be able to take in the utility bills to make sure that the, they're paid through the bank and the bank will either pay them directly or they will give the trustee bank drafts in order to uh, to pay those account on a monthly basis. And that has to be set up right away. Okay, good. So great things to know. Now, with houses or estates that are going on the market, in most cases, there's a lot of stuff. And the survivors or beneficiaries of that estate um, will usually want some of the stuff or they won't. So how have you dealt with stuff? With respect to stuff, the people, the, the will should also spell out who has an opportunity to get stuff. And then it should say at the end of the day, if there's any stuff left over that the trustee can deal with that stuff as the trustee sees fit. Mm -hmm. And usually after the family has been in and friends have been in, if there's anything that's left over, if it's worthwhile to a charity like a shelter or something like that, they will come and get it. If there is anything decent that can go to a Habitat for Humanity, it can be delivered or they will come and get it and everything else uh, goes into a bin. Yeah, unfortunately, it's a lot of stuff ends up in bins. I know, like, like you, you know, I've done a number of these and um, we have used Habitat for Humanity. We have used um, what's called uh, a company called Max Sold. And there are a couple of other companies like this who are online auctioneers. And we found that they've been really, really effective because they'll come in and they'll take a photograph of every single item that's in the house. 
and then they'll put it online for an auction with a deadline. Let's say they put it on on a on a Monday, then they'll have the auction run until the Saturday. And people will bid on it online. And the beauty of this is that people who buy it have to come and pick it up. And with one estate I was dealing with, we actually had three online auctions and got rid of a lot of the stuff. And it was very, very hard for the uh, for the survivors because a lot of memories uh, come with a lot of the belongings that are in the house. And they feel that, you know, some of those things are worth a lot of money. And in most cases, people aren't willing to pay what they think it's worth. And they end up, you know, basically giving it away at a low, low price. But at the same time, it does help to clear everything out. And then um, if it's not all uh, sold through the auction, then we do the Habitat for Humanity route. Or unfortunately, we have to call one of the junk removers to come in and take the stuff out so we can start with a fresh slate in the home of getting it staged and ready for sale. So if I can just add something to do that to what you just said, um, stuff in the home falls into many carrot, many um, different, uh, in, in different piles, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Some are quality, some are not. Yeah. Almost everybody who's a beneficiary who has some kind of attachment to the stuff thinks that it's worth more than it really is. And in some cases, things are very expensive to buy. My cautionary tale was a number of years ago, an estate that I did had a very significant collection of Waterford Crystal. And Waterford Crystal is very expensive to buy. I think it's a couple of hundred dollars a glass or something like that to buy new. For estate purposes, it was worth $5 a stem. Oh, my. And if you remember, many years ago, they used to have estate auctions and very, very expensive bedroom sets or dining room sets were up for auction. And they went for a fraction of what people thought they they were worth. Because the value is in the market. If there is a very small market that is only to willing to pay a certain amount, that's what the stuff is worth. Yeah, uh, I know. And it's really, really hard for the families to accept that. It really is. And especially with that that story you told us about the Waterford Crystal, my goodness, it's a huge discount. So we have sold properties, though, and you're a master of having great clauses that we have in our, our sales uh, in our agreements of purchase and sale. And one of the clauses that I remember that you had was that there may or may not be some contents of the home remaining on the day of closing and that the buyer agrees to assume anything that is left in the house on closing, which is unusual, right? Because usually we get these calls when in normal sales where uh, the buyers will call up and say, you know, they've left all this stuff behind. And, you know, we're, we're going to sue them. Right? They've got to come and we're going to pay for it to get out. And they're going to have to pay us back and all of this. And in most cases, the real estate agents step in and pick up the costs just to make things, you know, go smoothly and get the stuff removed. But um, I like that clause that you had there. And especially in a buyer or in a seller's market, uh, the buyers would go for that. The clause is there. Um, not so much in a situation where a buyer is buying the house to move into, 
but often people buy from an estate and even if the house has been well maintained for a very long time, the chances are it hasn't been modernized. And if a buyer is going to buy the house and modernized and they're going to get it modernized and there's going to be a bin there anyway, it's just easier to say you're having the bin, take the stuff, you can throw it in the bin instead of making us get it out and you bringing the bin in after. Yeah, I just brings me back to one of the estate sales that I did with you and it was a photographer that had owned the house. Yes. And there were a lot of old cameras that were left in boxes, like up, up in the, it was a bungalow, but it had an attic and there were boxes and boxes of photographs and old cameras and so on that were left on closing. So they're actually, they could have been valuable to somebody. If you remember, that was a hoarder's house. Yes. And um, it took many, many weeks to get that house cleared out. And we found a home for the cameras because somebody wanted them. Yeah. Uh, there was also photographs and various sundry things that found a home or didn't. You may also remember that there was a car in the garage that, we, sure could, do, yeah. that we could not get out because the car couldn't start. And the way it was in the garage, there was just no way to drive it out in any event. And all the tires were flat. We ended up leaving the car behind. And the buyer of the house knocked down the house and knocked down the, knocked down the garage. And they had the car towed out when it was a vacant lot. Oh, before yeah. they put up the new house. Yeah, but I also remember that the neighbor who had built next door ended up um, having the building encroach further into the mutual drive, and the car wouldn't have been able to fit down the mutual the drive The car wouldn't either. have fit down the mutual drive, and if I had had to get, at, get the car out of there, it would have meant trying to figure out a way to either flip it on its side or have it cut in half. So as you're hearing, an estate needs good planning. But if you're thinking of buying a house, you need good planning for that as well. And a pre-approval for a mortgage so you'll know exactly what you can afford to buy. And that's why I recommend that you get in touch with my mortgage guy, Jason Georgiopoulos. Jason will get you the best rates, the best terms available, because he has more than 30 lenders to choose from for you. To get in touch with Jason, you can email him at jasong at dominionlending.ca. What other type of clauses do you put into uh, the agreements of purchase and sale to protect the estate? So estate sales, in my mind, fall into the same kind of category of powers of sale when the bank is selling a property for non-payment of a mortgage. And when a bank sells a property under power of sale or a private more, a private lender does, they have a series of clauses that are exculpatory clauses that basically say, I don't know anything about this property, so I'm putting it on the market. I'm giving you no representations or warranties about the property, and you have to satisfy yourself. And if you're happy buy the property. And if you're not happy, don't buy the property. I'm a believer that 
executors, trustees should have the same kind of clauses when they market an estate property for sale because it's not a property that they live in. It's not a property that they're familiar with. Why should they have to give warranties like a normal seller does who's selling his own property? That's right. So they're basically selling it in as-is condition. As and you is, make sure of that. As-is condition and also no representations about use of the property, no representations about whether it's been insulated with urea formaldehyde, formaldehyde or not, whether or not there's been an oil tank on the property or not, or anything else. It's here it is. If you like it, buy it. If you don't like it, don't. Yeah, the other it's... thing that I'm a big believer in is for sellers, especially at say estate sellers, is to have a home inspection done and make mm -hmm. the book available to a purchaser and basically say, here it is. If you like it, great. If you don't like it, thanks for, you know, thanks for your time. Exactly. And I know another clause you put in there, speaking of home inspections, is that you have a clause that says that if the buyer does have a home inspection done on the property, um, we will not renegotiate the price. That's correct. As you well know, often an inspection clause is, is an invitation to renegotiate a deal, or that's the way some people look at it. Uh, I take the position, especially with an estate sale, here it is. And by the way, I think every seller should do uh, a home inspection book and have it available for a buyer just so that the buyer knows if they put in an offer, this is what they're getting. And there is no invitation to threaten to walk away if they don't get a discount. Yeah, that's a that's a really good thing to do. It's all out there in the open right up front so they know exactly what they're getting into. Um, Gary, in the state sales, so we have the trustee. And in a lot of cases, the trustee slash executor is a family member. And in a lot of the estates that I'm dealing with, they're usually a son or daughter of the person who has passed away. But even though the executor has all of the power to do what basically what they want with the sale, they usually um, talk to their other siblings about how they're going to approach things, um, how they're going to uh, you know market the property, how the market's going to, or sorry, how the property is going to be marketed. The real estate agent they're going to choose. Um, However, in some cases, when the executor slash trustee is not a family member, they go ahead and make the decisions. And then we have family members that are not really pleased with some of the decisions that happens. Correct? That is correct. So the very first thing that a trustee has to do is get an independent appraisal of the property. Depending on the type of property it is, if it's uh, unusual or there are not a lot of comparable listings, maybe you get a couple of appraisals of the property to reflect the value. Yeah, The appraised value is kind of like the gold standard for a trustee, because as long as the trustee gets something that is in 
smelling distance of the appraisal, they're doing their job properly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you, you mentioned a couple of things that maybe happen and maybe don't. Um, when the executor is a child, one of the things that you hope that person's going to be able to do is ultimately make a decision on his own or her own, because too much consultation is ultimately going to muddy the waters. And if somebody expresses too much displeasure, then the trustee is going to lose confidence that they are not selling the property the right way at the right price. There may be an outlier in terms of some one child that doesn't get along with the other children. And if they're not consulted, why not? So along the way, the trustee has to rely on the lawyer, has to rely on the realtor for the truth and the accuracy about the property because they ever if they ever have to justify themselves that is the basis to do it it's going to be your recommendation based on the market it's going to be the appraisal and one of the things that i always encourage in an estate sale is that it should always always be an all cash transaction the trustee shouldn't look at a higher number and a vendor take back situation and say, I'm going to take back money that prolongs the estate and adds the possibility there's going to be additional problems down the line. Yeah, we had the threats of uh, additional problems uh, come up recently in an estate sale where the trustee was not a family member. And um, I guess it was about a year ago, we uh, the, the the trustee got three independent opinions of value. It wasn't an actual appraisal by an accredited appraiser, but three individual opinions of value from realtors, from three realtors. And I was one of the realtors and I actually ended up with the listing as well. But the appraisals or sorry, the opinions of value that the three of us brought in were all around the $1.5 million mark. Now we all know what happened during um, March or February, March of 2022 of this year, when prices went completely through the roof. So just so happened that a house, their, their house was not ready to go on the market yet. There was a lot of stuff, a lot of things in the house. Um, it was uh, an elderly uh, child was still living in the house. We uh, hadn't found a place for her yet. And there was just so much to get ready. We had to we had online auctions done as well. But um, by the time we got the house on the market, the price was still more than what the three realtors, including me, had given them as an opinion of value from a year ago. But um, it was quite a lot more, but not as much as the market spike that we had in February and March. So when we did sell it, we sold it for about, I think we sold it for 1.8. So, you know, 300,000 more than what we thought it was going to go for a year ago. However, the beneficiaries got really upset with the trustee and threatened to sue him because they felt they didn't get enough money for the property. And we were doing our best to explain to the beneficiaries that the market had changed, that the interest rates had gone up, bringing down the, the property values. However, the values didn't sink 
anywhere lower than where they were a year ago. They actually had gone up by 300,000, but it still wasn't enough for them. So it wasn't a great situation. It's really too bad because the trustee was a wonderful person who had the, you know, his, he had the client's minds, the clients in mind with every step of the way. So it was really, really quite hard to see that they had lost faith in him and he did everything from, you know, the goodness of his heart. So in that story, there are a number of cautionary tales. Mm -hmm. The first one is that there's always going to be at least one person who's never satisfied. Yeah. And that's the person you have to keep in mind with everything that you do. The second one is depending on how long it took to find other accommodation for the child that was living in the house you were even you were never going to be able to sell the house or even listed for sale around that person that person had to be out so if she was not out of the house until end of february end of march that's really the time when you could have started uh, to to market the property and then markets change so mm-hmm. it is what it is yeah, it really is. As, and, as long as you do everything that you can the right way, that's all anybody can ask. Yeah, exactly. And the trustee didn't want to push her out. And, you know, she's an elderly woman. Her mother, again, was in her late 90s when she passed away and she was living with, you know, a senior citizen as a child. And that's, that's funny. I've had like three of these this year where the adult children were you know, probably collecting CPP. It's incredible. So I had a situation come up this week. I got a phone call from somebody. And just to be very brief, the uh, elderly mother who was in her 70s bought a house about 10 or 11 years ago with a mortgage and found that she couldn't afford the mortgage. So one of the children bought the house from the mother refinanced the house, paid off the mother's mortgage, and has been paying for the mother to live in the house, which is very very nice of the child. A um, couple years ago, the child that child moved in to live with mother. And now that mother is in her 80s, they made a decision, okay, we want everything clear so that there's no problems when mother dies. The problem is this should have been papered properly when all of this took place 10 years ago instead of now because now there is the other child who may come along and say well why didn't i get anything well yeah so very very important again we go back to the estate planning and the will and making sure everything is laid out clearly so everybody understands things so we don't have messes like this at the end um, can I just can I just say one thing briefly, but going back to the planning for a minute? Yeah. People do planning at one of two times. There is a minority of people who actually know that they have to do it and take proactive steps to do their planning properly with no stress or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's the people who decide to do it because they're reacting to a tragedy either in their friend group or in their family. Um those kind of people are sometimes a problem because they just want to get it done. 
They're afraid it's going to happen to them as opposed to taking the time to think things through properly. So I encourage everybody, if you're thinking about doing it, doing it when you don't have the pressure of somebody else's tragedy happen, uh, fresh in your mind. Yeah, yeah, that would make a huge difference. So Gary, we're just about ready to wrap up here. Um, one other thing I wanted to touch on was the importance of a big deposit when selling a property with a long closing. And we had one of these uh, during the winter where we sold the property and you were representing the estate as a lawyer. And you advised the trustees that, look, you know, you want a long closing. And one of the reasons they wanted a long closing, again, because the adult children were still living in there and it needed time for them to get out. But uh, and it was like a six month closing. And you had said at the time, well, if the market changes, then we don't want the buyer to walk away. And wow, we had not seen this happen for a long, long time, for many, many years, but the market changed. And we had a nice, sizable deposit. I think we had, in the end, a $200,000 deposit on the property. And that really, really helped in the long run because everything went well and they did close six months later. So actually, we had a $300,000 deposit at the end of the day. Yeah. Oh, it was that much? Well, they paid an extra 100000 because they wanted access to the property for certain things. So, Oh, that's right. For the redevelopment, they wanted so, to, to do renovations. Um, the question always is, is in a changing market, um, what is going to happen? And obviously, if somebody has put enough money into a transaction, they're going to think long and hard about walking away from it. Mm -hmm. And the only money that goes into a transaction initially is the deposit. So the bigger the deposit that you're able to get, the more leverage a seller has to keep somebody in a transaction. The other thing is, if a transaction does fall apart and the seller does get the deposit, then they may or may not have to sue the, um, the, the buyer for a loss. So if a transaction falls apart, a seller is entitled to their damages and they only sue if the damages are greater than the, than the deposit. So a big deposit basically covers most of the damages most of the time and minimizes the amount of litigation in that kind of scenario. Yeah, and I think one of our fears was that they, uh, the buyers were applying for building permits and that this property was located on a ravine, which would need Toronto Conservation Authority approval. And you were afraid, like, look, if they don't get these approvals, then they may just walk. So let's just make sure that if we give them the right to go and apply for permits that and access to the property, that we have a nice big deposit. And they did agree to it. And everything went well. And so did this last half hour, Gary. Everything went really, really well with this. Well, so thank you very much. I thank you. Thank you for having me on again. I really oh, appreciate it. It's fun. Yeah. Well, you have so much information to share with us, especially, and this is, you know, with our aging population, this is a huge topic right now with estate sales. So if you need to get in touch with Gary, you can email him at uh, Gary at GaryCast.com. And that's Gary with two R's and his name is spelled C-A-S-S. That's Cass. C-A-S-S -S is in Sam. So Gary at GaryCast.com. 
Gary, thank you very much again for your time. Thank you very much, Desmond. And that's our latest episode of Sold in the Six. So I know we don't want to think about dying, but we have to plan our estates well so that all the stuff is going to be looked after when we're gone. I know it's hard to think about, but make sure you have a good will and great estate planning. If you like this episode of Sold in the Six, please subscribe and you'll start getting these episodes automatically. And also, go ahead and send it to a friend. If you need to get in touch with me, you can reach me by email, and my email address is des at desmondbrown.ca. And you can follow me on all of the social media platforms. My handle is Des in the Six, and the Six is a number six IX. Until next time, I'm Desmond Brown. This is Story Studio Network.